Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Have you ever noticed how the older you get, time seems to pass more quickly? When I was a child, sometimes an hour felt like an eternity especially in Mr. Bryant's chemistry class. And summers, it felt like an entire lifetime was lived between the last day and first day of the school year. But as I move through life, an hour now seems to pass in the blink of an eye. It's easy to get lost in work, Wikipedia rabbit holes, or watching just one more episode in a Netflix binge session. But that's not to say there aren't occasions when time gets slow again like waiting at the DMV, or participating in endless Zoom meetings. Although we may feel like time is speeding up or slowing down, we know that objectively it's still moving at the same pace. We just interpret it differently, at different moments. Well, thanks to Albert Einstein and his theories on special and general relativity, we know that time is far from stable. So time is not something as Einstein once said, like a universal TikTok in the universe, uh, it needs to be calibrated to each observer. And that was really shocking to people. I'm Peter Gallison. I'm a professor at Harvard University in physics, history of science, and related areas, philosophy, and oddly enough, filmmaking. Einstein came up with his theory of special relativity in 1905, when he was just 26 years old. Through this theory, he discovered that time can actually warp in the universe. And a few years after Einstein came out with his theory of special relativity, he published his theory of general relativity. This gave us a completely new understanding of gravity. Before Einstein, before these revolutionary discoveries, our understanding of space, time, and gravity hadn't really shifted since the 1700s, when Sir Isaac Newton came up with his theories of physics. Einstein's theories of special and general relativity completely transformed our understanding of, well, everything. It liberated scientists, artists, and the public to think in radical new ways. It gave people a feeling that whatever it was that they wanted to challenge in art or the, you know, the idea of the standard poetical foot or the, you know, the, the, the standard rhythms of music. It helped, it gave people a sense that the world had turned and what had previously been given as dogma and absolute could be opened up to new forms. Welcome to Writ Large, a podcast about how books change the world. I'm Zachary Davis. In each episode, I talk with one of the world's leading scholars about one book that changed the course of history. For this episode, I sat down with Professor Peter Gallison to discuss Einstein's Miracle Years papers. Albert Einstein was born in Germany in 1879 and grew up in Germany, Italy, and Switzerland. He studied physics and math at the Swiss Federal Polytechnic School. He received his academic teaching diploma in 1900, 
but ended up working in a patent office from 1902 to 1909. In his off hours, Einstein worked on various mathematical theories and equations. In 1905, he was especially prolific. This is often referred to as Einstein's miracle year. In that year alone, he published four revolutionary papers outlining his discoveries in physics. So Einstein starting already when he was 22, 23, was wondering about these foundational ideas in science. He was never one to pick off the low-hanging fruit on the tree. He was always after the high fruit that was tastiest at the top of the tree. And he began to question the nature of light, the nature of space, the nature of time from very early in his career. Up until 1905, there was a great debate in science as to what light was made of. Some believed it was made of waves. Others believed it was made of particles. Einstein ran some experiments to test these theories. And while both theories held up with certain types of light, they didn't hold true for all types of light. Einstein came up with a theory and equation to suggest that light was made up of what he called wave packets, or what we know today as photons. For his second paper in 1905, Einstein mathematically proved the existence of atoms. Before this, some scientists believed in atoms and some didn't. Einstein solved this debate in a paper called On the Movement of Small Particles Suspended in a Stationary Liquid Demanded by the Molecular Kinetic Theory of Heat. That paper became an instant smash success, but relativity was harder. For his third paper of that year, On the Electrodynamics of Moving Bodies, Einstein tackled relativity. In its simplest form, Einstein's theory of relativity is a theory of gravity. Before Einstein, our understanding of the laws of nature were largely based on the ideas of English mathematician Sir Isaac Newton. Newton came up with his theory of mechanics, which explained the motion of objects. His theories proved to be extremely accurate when dealing with most objects. Basically, it works for things that are bigger than atoms, but smaller than planets, traveling at speeds far slower than the speed of light. This was all fine, and his theories worked really well when dealing with the majority of objects we encounter on Earth. The problem was that when you study massive objects on the scale of planets, stars, and galaxies, or objects that travel close to the speed of light, Newton's laws don't seem to match up. Having multiple explanations for the laws of physics didn't sit well with Einstein. And Einstein hated, hated that idea. Uh, he once said, um, you know, someone said, well, why don't you have, you know, a shampoo and a hand soap and face? He said, I just want one soap. He thought that there should be one explanation. That explanation was called special relativity. Special relativity is a representation of physics that says at its foundation, our physical laws should not depend on the frame of reference from which you view electricity, magnetism, optics, mechanics, all the known physics of the day. Through his theory of special relativity, Einstein concluded that the speed of light remains constant, and time and distance can fluctuate depending on the reference point. This was huge. It provided the missing piece to describe velocities approaching the speed of light, and proved that time and distance were not constant after all. 
For his fourth paper for that magical year of 1905, Does the Inertia of a Body Depend Upon Its Energy Content? Einstein arrived at his most famous equation, E equals mc squared. This equation states that E, the energy of something at rest, is equal to m, its mass, times c, the speed of light, squared. This equation explains how mass can be converted into energy. This had implications for all sorts of fields. Without it, we wouldn't have smoke detectors, nuclear power plants, exit signs, or radiocarbon dating. It explains why stars shine and why fire is hot. But it also led to the development of the atom bomb that was used in World War II. These four groundbreaking papers made Einstein's name in the academic world. Scientists all over began testing and applying his theories. Meanwhile, Einstein had started to say, you know what, I have bigger fish to fry even than this. There was another problem in the physics world that troubled Einstein. He wondered, if you're in constant motion, how can you prove that you're in constant motion? For example, say you're on an airplane traveling at 500 miles per hour. It probably doesn't feel like you're moving that fast. Aside from looking out the window, how can you actually know that you're moving at 500 miles per hour? Einstein observed that you can't tell if you're in motion if you're moving at a constant speed, but you can tell if you're accelerating or decelerating. If you've ever been on one of those children's playground toys, like a, a spinning di- big disc, and you can hold on to it as you spin you know, if you let go of the, you fly off, right? I mean, but if the thing is still, you don't fly off. It seems that for accelerating frames of reference, that there really is a way to tell whether you're in motion or not. And so Einstein said, well, I got to solve that too. So Einstein said, I want a theory that shows that every frame of reference, accelerating, whether it's turning or braking or accelerating or constant, that there's one description of physics and that the frame of reference that you use to observe it is incidental. Yet again, Einstein wanted one explanation. So Einstein, starting in about 1907, uh, shortly after special relativity, began to try to generalize this idea of capturing of universal physical laws within all of the different, seen from all the different frames of reference from which you might view all the different phenomena around us. This was no easy task. It took Einstein eight years to solve this problem, but in 1915, he came out with his general theory of relativity. He figured out a way of describing physical phenomena that doesn't matter whether you're observing it spinning or slowing down or speeding up. And the great, first, amazing consequence of this rigorous idea of applying relativity in all of its glory to the physical world is that he came up with an account of gravity that's very different from the idea of Newton. Newton said, amazingly, every object, every grain of sand, every star, every galaxy, every computer, every desk, every hair on your head is attracted to every other object in the universe by a very simple law that says you multiply their masses and you divide by the distance squared between them. And that tells you the force that pulls them together. 
And Einstein, you might think, would have said, okay, well, maybe it's not exactly Newton's law. Maybe we just have to correct it a little bit and say it's not one over the distance squared. Maybe it's one over the distance squared plus a little bit more, one over the distance cubed times some constant. But instead, Einstein came up with a new way to visualize time and space. Think of it this way. Space-time is a trampoline, and anything you put on that trampoline is matter. Whatever matter you put on the space-time trampoline pulls it down or distorts it. The more mass something has, the more it pulls on the surface of the trampoline. If you put a bowling ball on the trampoline, it will distort the surface a lot. If you put an apple on the trampoline, it will distort the surface a little. If you were to put a bowling ball in the middle of the trampoline and then roll a marble across the surface, the marble would not roll in a straight line. The bowling ball is pulling the surface down, so the marble would roll toward it. The path of the marble would be curved. And Einstein said, that's what gravity is. The gravity isn't a force at all. Gravity is just describable by bends and distortions in this thing called space-time. And so the mathematics for Einstein's theory is complicated because you have to calculate the bends and twists in space-time. But the physical law is as simple as was enunciated by Descartes in the early part of the 17th century. How do objects move? They travel in straight lines. But what a straight line is, is now complicated to calculate. Yeah, I'm just imagining this like curly Q rocket going through space and it looks to us chaotic, but it is in fact the straight yeah, line. Imagine you're, you know, on a complicated terrain on the surface of the earth and you, you know, you're an ant and you want to go from point A to point B and you're a smart ant. So you say, I want to take the shortest path. So you try out all the paths and you can identify the shortest path. That's what objects do. They take the shortest path, which is what we call a straight line in a more generalized sense, as they go. So if gravity warps space-time, then it must also warp the path light travels in. Einstein predicted how light would be bent by a gravitating object like the sun. And if there was a starlight behind it, it would be bent and come to us and we would see it as if the star had moved away from the sun. We know where the stars are in the sky. We look at night, we see where they are. And we know where they have to be during the day. We just can't see them because it's bright. But during an eclipse, we could see the stars. In 1919, English astronomer Arthur Eddington decided to put this to the test. If Einstein's theory was correct, then the path of light would change depending on where the sun is. If the sun is between the earth and the star, its gravitational pull would distort the path of the light, just like the bowling ball distorts the path of the marble. If the sun is not between the Earth and the star, the starlight would travel in a straight line, just like the marble would if you picked up the bowling ball. So in the daytime, it would look like the star is in one place in the sky, but at night, it would look like it's somewhere else. The only problem is that if it's daytime and the sun is between the Earth and the star, you can't see the star because the sun is too bright. To test this theory, you'd need it to be daytime, but without the blinding light from the sun. So knowing that an eclipse was coming in May of 1919, Eddington and his colleagues went to 
the island of Principe off the west coast of Africa and set up a telescope and a photographic device to be able to see where the stars look to be in the sky. They came back, they looked at their um, data, they developed the, and it turns out they developed the photographic plates. And sure enough, it turned out that the star's apparent place in the sky were moved. And this was literally front page news. And Einstein at that point, this is mid-late November 1919, Einstein became a public figure, really like nobody had been in the sciences since Darwin and before Darwin, Galileo, and Newton. Why did it make front page news? Why was it so captivating? The promise of progress, of a change of the foundations of science that had been static in some ways about space and time since Galileo and Newton. Um, And suddenly you have a modern picture in which these things that we think we understand of absolutes replaced in a way you know, by this name, relativity, that itself was suggestive of challenges to the absoluteness of ethics and politics, aesthetics. And so it was taken up and transformed in all sorts of ways by poets like William Carlos Williams. And, um, every modern poet began to take it up. Buckminster Fuller and all these modern architects began to take it up of the challenges of non-Euclidean space, which was already an issue before Einstein, now was embodied in the physical fabric of the universe. Um, It became a topic of fascination and of appropriation in the philosophical, artistic, cultural sphere um, in a way that little else had been. I mean, even, um, you know, the great song, As Time Goes By, which we know from Casablanca, but one of its original verses refers to Einstein and the challenges of space and time. This really captured the imagination of the cultural world like nothing in science had. Let's now discuss the cultural influence. So as you say, he got all this attention um, when they did that experiment and proved that light was bending um, around the sun and that eclipse. How did artists get inspired by, by Einstein's work? And um, in what other forms do you see his theories or kind of the reworkings of his theories bleeding into other borders of culture and society? I mean, everybody, all the poets were engaged by uh, this idea of Einstein and they, Interestingly, they they focused on different things. I mean, in all of these cases, you can say, well, that's not exactly what Einstein meant. But the the I think the radicality of this criticism of accepted dogma for Einstein, the received view that was handed down to us by Newton of an absolute space and time that existed beyond the measures of rulers and clocks and that somehow behind it all lay something true and absolute. The sensorium of God, 
as Newton sometimes said. And sometimes we could get closer to that, sometimes not. But the idea that there was an absolute lying behind our merely human measure seemed very important. And I think that when that idea broke down with Einstein, it it authorized in some sense. It gave hope and support to people from all these different areas who saw in Einstein's challenge to the received ideas, and not just any kind of a challenge, a challenge to foundational ideas that had been seen as unassailable. And that idea that things thought to be absolute, given and permanent, could be put to the test, could be broken in some way to explore new forms of of the arts. Einstein provided fertile ground for rebuilding and rethinking the old order, which was particularly important in 1919. You have to remember this took place in a context. This took place in a political post-military moment, you know, a post-World War I moment, when uh, the old order and treaties of Europe, the old order in the world, seemed to have failed catastrophically. You could, you know, a conservative couldn't point to and say, look how we preserve, you know, Western, you know, civilization had had not done well by anybody's standard in killing, you know, hundreds of thousands of young men, you know, from the belligerent countries for nothing. So (laughs) relativity. Do you see a link between Einstein's theories of relativity and what people call postmodernism, the sense that, you know, there, there's really only perspectives. There's only points of view. There's no objectivity when it comes to nearly any matter, both scientific and cultural. So in Einstein's thought, there are two sides of the same coin. If you take a pencil and you look at it at you know pointy at with a pointy side towards your eye but safely away you see it as a little circle a little disk if you rotate it you see it as a little long a long rectangle and in between you see other shapes right so you could say the shape of the pencil is relative, you know, if I, especially if I projected it onto the wall with a lamp, you know, I projected its shadow onto the wall, I could see all these different things. Or if I looked at it backlit, I'd see these different shapes. But you would point out, there is a shape of the pencil. And in three dimensions, as opposed to being projected on the wall or seen as a silhouette against a bright light, um, that is always the same. I mean, so you don't break the point or wear it out. And so in three dimensions, we see something constant. But when we project it into two dimensions or look at it in silhouette or in shadow form, we see all sorts of different things depending on our perspective. That's very analogous to what happens in relativity. Now, what relationship might that have to the other domains that we are interested in in which the term relativity is used? For instance starting around the turn of the 19th to 20th century, 
Franz Boas, the great anthropologist, begins to talk about the relativity of cultures. He said there isn't a hierarchy of cultures. There's you know, Prussia at the top and whoever is least favored at that moment in the colonies at the bottom. And um, he said, you know, every culture has its uses of symbols and its origin stories and its forms of reproduction. And, you, you know, out of that deep insight came what we would consider to be modern anthropology. And um, you try to see what's constant over these variations and what's not. And even, you know, the framing that I just gave of cosmogenesis and forms of reproduction, and uses of symbols. And, you know, you're already pointing to things that have some commonality. It is poignant and, and somehow related that he was a pacifist who found World War I horrific. And if there's any war, in my knowledge, where you know being able to see the perspective of the other side would have been helpful, that like the the limits of of nationalism and the way it blinds your own your own position, um, that he probably would have you know, very much advocated for a recognition that where you stand determines how you see the rest of your reality. Yes, and he did. I mean, he, you know, he, he once said, I have the same view about national allegiance as I do to allegiance to my insurance company. You know, he just thought it was incredibly dangerous. Nationalism was a force of destruction, ultimately, that would set people against each other. Einstein's discoveries have had an enormous impact on the world of science that we're still building on today. I, I look on it with real wonder, you know, that, you know, that the, to me, the two most extraordinary events in recent physical sciences, uh, one is this the LIGO experiment, measuring gravity waves from a billion light years away uh, as two black holes collide. I mean, I, I see that as just an astonishing glimpse into the universe that's taking us back to the very early moments of post-Big Bang. And and then, you know, getting a glimpse, I mean, I, it was one of the great privileges of my life that I was able to participate with some 200 of my nearest and dearest in making this first image of a black hole and the orbiting billion degree gas around it. Um, you know, and these are these are unimaginable without Einstein. I mean, literally unimaginable. Without the idea of gravity waves, there's no LIGO. Without the idea of the lensing, bending, you know, the idea of a black hole itself. I mean, you can't get to step 001 in imaging a black hole if you have no black hole and no way of imagining how the light from around it would travel towards us. So to me, Einstein, you know, it's, it's, it's astonishing that there's this 100-year torch passing from 1915 to the eclipse expedition of 1919 to 1915 to 2015 to 2020 and in these new observations of the distant universe and these black holes, these strangest of all objects in the universe. His impact isn't limited to just science. So I see Einstein as being, you know, constantly kind of with us in a present way. And his 
his bearing, his involvement. I, to me, the a richer, more engaged Einstein is more interesting than the head in the clouds. You know, I can't ride a bicycle. I can only think I'm a brain in a vat. I think it's much more interesting to know that he fought for civil rights, that he, you know, that Robeson came to visit him, you know, that he, um, you, you know, in, in, in this in so many ways, I, I, I see Einstein is still with us. And as a figure that exceeds specific scientific discoveries, because there are many discoveries in science that will remain with us for as long as people do science, like quantum mechanics or the basis of genetics or the chemical bond. 1905 was a miracle year not only for Einstein, but for humanity as a whole. The papers he published in this year led to a completely new understanding of how the natural world operates and set him on the path for his later ideas on general relativity and gravity that continue to shape our understanding of the world. I mean, we're still testing these things. We're still using them. GPS wouldn't function at a technical level without general relativity. We wouldn't have the transistor without understanding about quantum mechanics, therefore the modern computer, you know, the great experiment that measures gravity waves as a consequence of general relativity, the LIGO experiment. The Event Horizon Telescope, with which I've been involved, uh, that took a, the first picture, the image of a black hole, all of that is made possible by general relativity. So we're still testing and exploring the consequences of general relativity. And, um, you know, nobody's made money betting against Einstein. Writ Large is produced by Galen Beebe, Jack Pombriant, and me, Zachary Davis. We get help from Liza French. Our theme song is by Ian Koss, and our branding is by Dan Petchy. We're a member of LitHub Radio. Writ Large is a Lyceum original production. Join our discussion room in the Lyceum app to share your thoughts and hear what other listeners are saying. You can also find us on our website, writlarge.fm. There, you'll find transcripts, links to the books we discussed, and more information about today's guest. Thanks for listening. See you next time.